When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 355, for the cause. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the morals, meanings, and messages of each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, For the Cause, where we take a closer look, but not quite a six-hour inspection, of an episode that sheds a great deal of light on the complexity of duty, obligation, and loyalties. But rest assured... One thing you can count on is the wealth of information on how to contact us about your thoughts regarding this and every episode of Mission Log. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, with a trove of trivia made as clear as Tabalian glass, here's John Champion. Thank you, Norman. Trivia for today's episode for The Cause. We have a story by Mark Jared O'Connell. Here's an occasional Trek contributor who has pitched a few stories that made it to air. He didn't get the on-screen credit, but he did have the original story pitch for the sixth season TNG episode Timescape. Shortly after, his stories started getting picked up for DS9. Second Sight and Meridian both came before this one. Interestingly, He said that the inspiration for this story was specifically the April 1995 bombing of the Alfred Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The basis of that, a homegrown terrorist, when people initially suspected a foreign influence, is what sparked the idea here. Of course, it changed a great deal over time, and the focus of the script went in other directions, and that was the influence of Ronald D. Moore, who gets the teleplay credit here. Story is directed by James L. Conway. We just talked about James recently. He was in the director's chair for Shattered Mirror and Little Green Men, uh, and he's got one more DS9 episode before we catch him over on Voyager. We have 
lots of shots of Cassidy's ship, the Zosa here. So I want to focus on that for a minute. Uh, we have both exterior and interior, and I'll talk about that a little more later too. But I, I want to point out again that this is a model that has been used many, many times, uh, starting on TNG in Heart of Glory, and then modified over the years to serve in more of Next Gen, DS9, we'll catch it again in Voyager and Enterprise. It's a rugged, versatile model built by Greg Jean. And I think the very first time around when we talked about that model, I mentioned in the trivia that he had partly used a model from the V miniseries as a base for this one. So here, the Zosa is an Antares-class ship. That was revealed in the Star Trek Encyclopedia, and it was Mike Okuda who said that, yes, that was in fact a tie-in, a little tribute to the Antares that we encountered way back in the TOS episode, Charlie X. Let's talk about guest stars for a minute. Lots of returning. We've got Penny Johnson back as Cassidy Yates, and we've got Kenneth Marshall as Michael Eddington. Uh, there is a bit of trivia about him that I love. Uh, the writers said that at the time, fans were suspecting that Eddington was a changeling like Odo. And it was specifically because of that speculation that the writers decided to do the opposite and have him be revealed as part of the Maquis. So that just shows you sometimes if you fan the flames of a rumor online, the writers will hear it and they will do the exact opposite just to spite you. Now, we have scenes with a new face on DS9, Lieutenant Reese, here played by Stephen Vincent Lee. Stephen started working in TV in the early 80s and pretty quickly got a recurring role on General Hospital. He kept making the rounds until the early 2000s, and he even appeared in the Pierce Brosnan pre-Bond miniseries Noble House. Stephen has an extensive background in fitness and martial arts, which came into play in a number of his roles. We also meet Tora Zial again for the first time. Uh, in the previous episodes, when we saw Gul Dukat's half-Bajoran daughter, she was played by Sia Batten. Here, Zial is played by Tracy Middendorf. Coincidentally, Tracy and Sia have the same birthday. Tracy had a number of interesting recurring roles, from Boardwalk Empire to Beverly Hills 90210, and many points in between. She had a major role on Scream, the TV series, but she might be best known to horror fans for playing Julie in Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 1994. Vintage sci-fi fans will also note that she was in the 2002 pilot for an attempted reboot of Irwin Allen's The Time Tunnel. Zial will be back, but Tracy won't. This is the only track appearance for her. May I make a small confession here, John? Please, confess your sins, Norman. <laughs> <laughs> well, my great sin here, because I don't think I had a chance to talk about Eddington before, is that when I saw him, I had to double take because I knew the voice, but I mm -hmm. wasn't quite sure of, of the actor's appearance at this time. Because one of my favorite films of all time is Krull. Oh, That sure. starred Ken okay. Marshall yeah. as yeah. Prince Colwyn with yeah. a... Far more fabulous head of hair. He <laughs> looks very different. Yes. I hate to disappoint anyone who was expecting a Krull joke here. Sorry, I glaive at the office. 
Prologue. Captains Benjamin Sisko and Cassidy Yates are sharing a wonderfully relaxing morning together. However, all good things eventually come to an end as duty calls. More specifically, Cassidy's engineer, who pulls her away from a very persuasive Captain Sisko, who is trying to lure her back to their bed, albeit unsuccessfully. Oh well, the scent of her perfume on her pillow will have to do for now. Later in the wardroom, Commander Eddington is briefing the command staff regarding a very sensitive Starfleet operation. Two weeks prior to this briefing, the Cardassian civil government secretly contacted the Federation Council, requesting several industrial replicators to which the Federation has agreed. Security measures have been increased on the station, as there are rumors that the Maquis will try to interfere or even steal the shipment to sabotage any Cardassian foothold in their colonies. Shortly after the crew is dismissed, both Constable Odo and Commander Eddington stay behind to discuss one last piece of extremely sensitive information with Captain Sisko. Extremely sensitive in the fact that someone that he intimately knows may be a Maquis smuggler operating on Deep Space Nine. Someone named Cassidy Yates. Act 1. Reeling from the allegation that Cassidy may be a Maquis sympathizer, Sisko demands evidence, as smuggling with intent to supply a terrorist organization is a very serious charge, one of which Odo is very clear to remind the captain. Armed with only circumstantial evidence at this time to support their suspicions, Odo and Eddington tell Captain Sisko that Cassidy was only recently hired by the Bajorans five months ago, to ferry cargo to their outlying colonies with an unusual regular stop at a colony on Dreon 7, which would give her time to travel to the Badlands and a possible rendezvous with the Maquis. They also speculate that the Maquis agents are already living on the station and have been doing so in the same time frame when Cassidy started living with the captain. Sisko was appalled by their allegations, however does agree to letting them inspect her ship, just in case. Meanwhile, Dr. Bashir and Garrick are taking in a spring ball game. Well, Julian is watching Major Akira play, as Garrick's attention is directed elsewhere. It seems that Garrick has taken an interest in Goldicott's illegitimate daughter, Zial, who is also in attendance and cheering for Major Akira. Dr. Bashir reminds Garrick that it might not be a good idea to get involved with Zial, the daughter of his enemy, Dakot, and a very overprotective Major Akira. Back in his quarters, Captain Sisko is preparing for a lovely sit-down dinner with Cassidy and Jake, Bajoran Rotomba stew over spinach linguine. As Jake struggles with a few details for his new novel, like the scent of a Kavarian tiger bat, Captain Sisko sees this as an opportunity to learn more about Cassidy's shipping routes. But with each question, she becomes increasingly evasive, only allowing for Benjamin's suspicions to grow. Act 2 after several passengers leave the turbo lift, Garrick finds himself uncomfortably alone with Zial, who is also somewhat disquieted amidst their tense and awkward silence. After a somewhat disarming conversation, the two part ways and Garrick is relieved to live another day. Meanwhile, in the cargo bay, Cassidy prepares her ship, the Zosa, for a delivery rendezvous with a Tholian freighter. Her time-sensitive departure is delayed, however, due to the ever-resourceful Constable Odo, who has found a way to inspect the Zosa's cargo, citing a recent Bajoran outbreak of a Temeklian virus. Faced with a six-hour inspection process, which would jeopardize her delivery schedule, Cassidy calls Sisko for a favor and to intervene on her behalf. Much to Eddington's dismay, Sisko agrees to let her go, but assigns Worf to take the Defiant and follow her under cloak with orders to observe and report back with any findings during that delivery run. 
As the Defiant follows the Zosa, Chief O'Brien informs Worf that Cassidy's ship has indeed altered course and is heading towards the Badlands. Once there, the Defiant continues under cloak to observe the Zosa for any illegal activity. The Chief, always one to voice his opinion, shares his admiration for the gutsy and resourceful Maquis, to which Worf retorts with disdain for their dishonorable behavior as terrorists and criminals. Looking for a third opinion, O'Brien then turns to Eddington on his opinion on the Maquis, to which he responds curtly about caring only to serve Starfleet as best he can. Suddenly, the Defiant sensors signal the approach of a Maquis raider and the Zosa beaming over its cargo, confirming that Cassidy is in fact smuggling supplies to the Maquis. Act 3. While Garrick is busy preparing his tailor shop for business, Zial pays him a surprise visit. After taking a look around, she graciously compliments him on his shop and his tailored goods. In almost a peace offering, she invites him to join her in a very special holosuite program that is a reproduction of a Cardassian sauna, knowing he would appreciate a taste of being back on their home world. Garrick cautiously accepts and looks forward to their... date? Jake sits down with his father for breakfast, but instead of the normal juice and oatmeal, he partakes in something that Cassidy recommended, Ractagino with a slice of crustless macapa bread. As Jake's breakfast starts foaming and bubbling, he offers some to his father who seems distracted and admits he didn't get much sleep the night before. Jake teases him with innuendo of sleepless nights because he's missing Cassidy's companionship, and Sisko brusquely ends the conversation with a simple explanation of having a bad day. In the wardroom, Eddington analyzes the defiant surveillance of the Sosa and surmises that the cargo was mostly likely food and medical supplies, and not weapons, as Dax interjects. Worf informs Sisko that Cassidy is returning from another supply run soon, and Sisko dismisses the briefing. As Dax lingers behind, concerned about her friend, Sisko simply replies, Dismissed, old man. Back in his quarters, Sisko readies himself for Cassidy's return from her most recent delivery. She comes in smiling and thanks Benjamin for intervening earlier on her behalf as he slyly questions her about her route, to which she becomes increasingly evasive. Their strained conversation is soon interrupted when Jake surprises both of them with an invitation to a baseball game holosuite program that Nog has just sent him. Benjamin declines having to get back to ops, even as Cassidy protests telling him that she has to leave in a few hours before her next cargo run. Act 4. Sisko informs both Eddington and Odo that Cassidy will be leaving to make another run later that night and is prepared for any future inspections. Odo suggests that the Defiant should follow her back into the Badlands, arrest all parties involved, and seize all inventories should they observe another clandestine meeting between the Zosa and the Maquis. After Odo leaves, Eddington stays for a more private conversation. He tells Sisko that he would rather stay on the station and oversee the incoming delivery of the Federation replicators, instead of being responsible for Cassidy's safety, if a violent confrontation broke out between the Defiant and the Maquis. Sisko understands what Eddington is alluding to, and agrees to take command of the Defiant himself. Sisko catches up with Cassidy as she's preparing to leave, feigning interest in the final score from Jake's Holosuite baseball game. He then impulsively invites her to leave with him immediately for a spontaneous trip to Ryza. Cassidy declines as she states once again that she has another time-sensitive delivery to fulfill. Once she leaves, the Defiant trails her as planned into the Badlands and waits.
Meanwhile, in Garrick's shop, Quark is giving his tailor quite an earful as Garrick is far too distracted in properly fitting out Quark's new suit. Major Kira comes storming in and slams Garrick up against the wall, making it very clear that if anything happens to Zial, he would live to regret it. As she leaves, Quark and Garrick discuss the finer points, or perhaps dangers, of Garrick's upcoming date with Zial. Date, or untimely demise? Back on the Defiant, five hours have passed with no sign of a Maquis ship, and Odo points out that terrorists don't work this way, even if Worf suggests that the cargo may be so valuable as to wait and risk being discovered. Odo then realizes that the Maquis may already have what they wanted, namely the Defiant and specifically Sisko, lured away from Deep Space Nine using Cassidy as bait. Taking the initiative, Sisko and company decloak and beam over to the Zosa. Cassidy feigns ignorance, but Sisko forces her to drop the ruse, especially if the station, and especially Jake, are in danger of being attacked. Cassidy confesses that the Maquis told her she was to wait and deliver the medical supplies no matter what. Sisko then realizes that this was all an elaborate plan orchestrated by Eddington, who has been left in charge of the incoming Federation replicators. In the wardroom, Eddington dismisses the contingent of security personnel with specific orders for complete secrecy and communications blackout. And as Kira reports in as per his request, he informs her that he will be taking command of the station, stunning her with his phaser and locking the door behind him. Act 5 Heading back to the station at maximum warp, Warp is unable to hail Deep Space Nine, citing a communications blackout. Oda reminds the captain that Cassidy and the Zosa are still at large, and very well may never be seen again, to which Sisko firmly retorts, stating that she was his responsibility and to leave it at that. Meanwhile, Eddington has his security detail finalize readying the replicators for transport. Before he departs, Eddington leaves command of Deep Space Nine to Lieutenant Reese. As the junior officer makes his way to ops, Eddington removes his comm badge and escapes with the replicators in his control. As the crew returns to ops, Sisko and his command staff all come to the realization that Eddington has been several steps ahead of them in the entire time, and that no matter their efforts, he was prepared to counteract every contingency. Suddenly, to their surprise, Eddington finally makes contact. Sisko, taking Eddington's call in his office, hears him reveal that he is indeed part of the Maquis, and simply wants to be left alone. But Sisko assures him in every possible way that he will dedicate all of his resources to hunting him down. Speaking of feeling hunted, Garrick finally joins Zial in her Cardassian Sana Holosuite program. Ever the interrogator, Garrick asks Zial as to why he was invited. She assuages his fears, confessing that there is no hidden agenda, no reprisals, and no revenge. She knows what it feels like to be an outcast and alone, as he does, and enjoys the pleasure of his company. And in typical Garrick fashion, he proves he trusts her words by laying down his phaser, which was a precautionary measure, of course. Surprising everyone, especially Captain Sisko, Cassidy returns willingly to Deep Space Nine after leaving her crew behind in a Maquis base so they wouldn't share her eventual fate. Cassidy came back because, regardless of what will happen, and knowing she will be convicted of aiding and abetting known terrorists will be sent to prison, she still believes in what she and Benjamin have and is worth fighting and waiting for. The end. All right. Hey, look, uh, no place to start like the beginning. 
so I feel like we have to go back to the very beginning. We open, as you said, with this uh, intimate scene in the uh, the Cisco quarters bedroom with Ben and Cassidy. And I was actually, I was surprised to read that it was a big deal to have them in bed together. I mean, this is the mid-90s. It's not the mid-60s anymore. You know, we've had, even in the 60s, so we had Kirk pulling on his boots and wink of an eye. We know what just transpired there before he pulled on his boots. We've had Deanna getting the weirdest massage ever in The Price. Um, We've had uh, a truly interesting and important same-sex kiss in Rejoined. But... This was another moment that worried the producers on Star Trek. I I mean, I I get that, okay, they're making a show that is uh, going out nationally and internationally, and because it's syndicated, played at all kinds of, you know, times that they can't control. Um, So I get that they want to scrutinize everything, but this is no longer the 1950s. It's no longer, you know, Ricky and Lucy having separate beds. So Ozzy and Harry, yeah, yeah, kind of dynamic, yeah, right. So it just it, it surprised me to read that, and maybe that's coming from my perspective more than twenty years after this episode aired. Just thinking, well, well, this is the kind of thing we see all the time, but it, it, because it was just such a natural scene, we're just like, of course, of of course, this is where we would expect to find Benjamin and Cassidy. So I, I don't know. I just I wonder if that scene struck you at all with anything out of place or surprising or you know i think that's a really interesting point because we're watching these episodes with today's sensibilities Mm -hmm. at the age that we are now and i don't remember back in the mid 90s of of this kind of uh like network taboo of having people share the same bed especially in kind of like a dramatic presentation that being said you never know what like the network wants to pull because they do have to appeal to a mass majority of you know international markets and some markets may be like uh 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 no 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 mm-hmm. you can't have two people especially two african american people mm-hmm. sharing the same bed that may have been a problem for international markets i don't know yeah. but one of the things that i liked and and maybe it was improvised maybe not but I really liked how Benjamin, he smelled his pillow. He's like, no, I don't like my scent. I like her scent. And just kind of grabbed her pillow and just kept sniffing it. Um, one of the lines, though, in that scene that I found incredibly foreshadowing is when, you know, Benjamin says, I'm a paragon of Starfleet virtue. And then Cassidy says, more like a parody of virtue. Uh-huh. And I thought that was really sly where they kind of like slipped that in, knowing what she knows, knowing that we didn't know who she was, but knowing what we know now. Yes. Yeah. No, that that was really cool. And, and by the way, the sly little reference there back to uh, Harry Mudd, um, re- referring to Captain Kirk as a paragon of virtue. So mm-hmm. uh, I th- thought that was nice too. But yes, good little bit of... Uh, of uh, planting a little seed there for us for later in the show. Hey, and in this episode, we get a spring ball game. Finally, <laughs> finally, we get a spring ball. And as suspected, it's pretty much space handball. I mean, so look, I'm not a mm-hmm. big sports guy so before, but I, I do like it every now and then when a sci-fi show invents its own sport. Like, surely you remember back in the day on the original Battlestar Galactica, you had Pyramid. 
And, uh, you know, oh, sure. yeah, right. Right. So you just you take something we can all relate to, like just people running around playing handball, but but you make it spacey and make it really intense. That's, you know, that's the trick. Anytime you're going to do sports in sci fi. The great, uh, the great lamentable fact is that we did not have Patrick Manese, Count Ebley, influencing the, the pyramid game. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and speaking of sports, so I, I love the idea of a Hollow Suite program that lets you change historical events. So, like Jake comes in with that. Hey, I just got this new program. It's the '61 Yankees versus the 78 Red Sox. Like, that's mm-hmm. so cool to me. And again, being somebody who's not into sports, I, I can appreciate it, and I could see using that technology for, for what I want. Like, I could have Elvis opening for Queen, or I, yeah. I could have the 1964 Beatles opening for the 1970 Beatles. That I, I could just make my own show. Like that, I think that's, well, that's so yeah. Cool. That's the cool thing about like the the potential of Holodex, um, and I think that it was kind of like uh, speaking to the kind of like the gaming culture at the time because back then, like when Madden first came out or when NBA All Stars came out, mm-hmm. you could actually pit like uh, superstar teams, you know, like the the nineteen seventy two Dolphins versus say like the nineteen seventy eight Steelers. Both were like at the top of their game. They obviously would never played each other. But or you could put like the the nineties Chicago Bulls versus the eighties Lakers. You know, it's just it would be cool to see like these fantasy lineups. Yeah, because you can yeah. do it in Hollow Suite programs. But, but here's what's so interesting about that: it's like, okay, you could feed all that information into a computer, right? You, you could take the the stats, the the history of a player. You can like pump that computer full of information, and it could do a pretty good simulation based on who has what strengths and weaknesses. However, that computer would also have to be smart enough to throw in random things. Like Mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about a game is that, yeah, you can have a lot of very talented people playing, but you can't control for certain random events. Somebody could twist an ankle. Somebody could, uh, you know, accidentally miss because somebody jumped in front of a ball or whatever. Like, there are all these little random moments that then the computer could basically throw that game by (laughs) laying out these, you know, a bird could fly by and distract a player from doing something, you know? Yeah. 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 And so I'm surprised that, you know, more of those programs weren't kind of uh, employed by Quark and have him take bets and run a little bit of a side, you know, gambling business you know, through his Hollow Suite programs. Right. That would have been kind of cool. Yes. yes. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, though, watching the spring ball game, and it's because I literally like track every single scene that Garrick's in yeah. because you know how I feel about Garrick. He's amazing. Yeah. His hair looked long for me. His wig looked long for me. And it just kind of bugged me because Garrick is usually very uh, well kept, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know his his hair is an, a certain length, kind of like his whole demeanor is a certain length, and he just yeah. seemed like he was a little uh, unkempt. Interesting in this episode. Interesting. I, I didn't. Re- so, yeah. and did you pick that up through the whole episode, or like just in that particular scene? I, I actually I didn't know the whole episode. Yeah. And huh. I thought it would have been really interesting if, say, Zial came in. And part of the Hollow Suite program, or even when Garrick finally uh, uh, resolved himself to, to join her, she pulled out 
like a knife or some kind of blade. And, you know, and then Andrew Robbins's Garrick eyes would, you know, open really widely and he would start sliding out his phaser. And he's like, oh, I just thought you would need a haircut. Yeah. Or I thought you needed a haircut. Yeah, right. Your hair looks a little long. Right, right. Something to yeah. that effect. Well, see, so we'll have to wait and see if that, that look stays with Garrick now for the next uh, few episodes. I do have my writer's hat on, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah. That's, this, is my, this is my legitimate right, writer's right. hat, my Detroit yeah, exactly. Tiger's hat. By the way, so I, of course, I always have to point out the food. What Cisco is cooking looks terrible. Um, it, it looks like mm-hmm. one of those recipes from the 1950s for like a gelatin salad or something that shows up on the internet somewhere. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look up the Gallery of Regrettable Food and you'll just waste an entire day there. I guarantee you, you will love it. But uh, Jake's Rectagino and bread, that is fun. I would totally be down for that. So, you know, yeah. whenever Star Trek Las Vegas opens up again, Mm-hmm. one of the bars there should put that on the menu and just see if people get it. Yeah. Yes. You know, like you and yeah. I would be sitting down and talking about, you know, whatever we're going to talk about on a panel. And then we would have our, I guess it was a, uh, some type of biscotti and hot chocolate. And then just kind of, I don't know, put like an Alka-Seltzer yeah. tab in there and just, <laughs> right, exactly. it there's gotta be a way. There's gotta be a we way. We were like, oh my God, they're having Jake's coffee. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed Jake's coffee moment. There's Ractagino moment. But that, that moment at the end with Ben grabbing Jake's hand and a little talk about this is important. So look, I, I know it was designed to be awkward because Ben is just in his head and, and mm. mulling over everything that's going on. Um, but it also just felt awkward. So, yeah. I like the intent of the moment, but you're mm-hmm. right. I think that the execution itself was just a little um, ham-handed, mm-hmm. I think is the right word. Of yeah. yeah. <laughs> ham-handed. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Uh, yeah. yeah, it just, uh, there was a lot, there was like a, a very solemn feeling to that and, and how Benjamin was feeling in that moment. And I think he just wanted to kind of like reach out and say like, no matter what happens, Jake, yeah. no matter what I know, and no matter how much you care about Cassidy, you and I are okay. We'll yeah. always be okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the intent is there for sure. It's just, it's, it's kind of an odd scene, you know? All right. So in trivia, I mentioned the Zosa Cassidy ship. Um, and I, I just want to point it out again, because I, I really like, it has sort of a retro sci-fi look to it, like um, something that we would have seen on screen in the 70s in like, you know, uh, Galactica or Silent Running or Alien or whatever. It's one of those models. It's just got a lot of detail on it. It's very out of step with a lot of Star Trek where Star Trek, you, you typically hide the engines. Like you have nacelles on everything, but there's not like big rocket engines on the back of it. The Zosa has got these big, you know, uh, emitters on the back, these big engines on the back. It's very cool looking. And um, the interior has some great touches. Those view screens with the blue borders around them and the displays very TOS inspired. Uh, so I thought that was a nice nod uh, in terms of design to saying like, hey, this is an older ship. Here's how we know they're using this older technology. I thought that was cool. I was trying to figure out, because you said that this model was used in V. I'm not sure if it was used in V, the, the miniseries, or V, the actual series. series. Uh, it was used in the miniseries, so it was an alien, uh, the, the visitor's a freighter. 
but it, only the base yeah. of that. So Greg Jean okay. went back in and, and kit bashed and covered it up with other stuff and then kind of bolted on a few other parts. Then on Star Trek, it went through many different paint jobs and they had to add a piece, take away a piece. So, yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. One of the things that I found was a little strange for me is I'm not sure. And I'm, believe me, I know that fans will probably take exception to me saying this, but I have to be honest. Sometimes Avery doesn't play coy or sly with the subtlety that I think needs to be done with scenes where he was kind of chasing an answer from Cassidy. You know, it just seems that he's very uh, heavy handed again. Using heavy. Look, I I don't want to jump to the end of our show, but I agree. I think I'll have other things to say about Avery's acting here. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, because, look, when he's good, he's great. And I don't know if it's a matter of the right director or the right words to put in his mouth. Um, It's sort of like with Shatner, you know, like going back and rewatching TOS. When Shatner is great, he is great, and he can bring a lot of layers to a performance, but the things that stick out that are sort of the the hammy, the over-the-top, whatever, yeah, those are there too, but it could be a variety of elements. It doesn't mean that he is a bad actor. It could have been a bad performance on that day. It could have mm-hmm. been a mismatch with the director getting the right things out of him. I feel like... This is an episode where Avery's performance is, um, it is inconsistent. And mm. uh, I, I might, in fact, I know I will come back to that at the end of our show. All right, all right speaking of uh, Ben Sisko, Avery Brooks, so right, there's that shot of Benjamin Sisko. He's in the foreground. He's facing the camera. And he's saying, she's making another run tonight. While Odo and Eddington are way in the background. All right, but they're also facing forward. So they're looking at Cisco's back while he's saying that. It's very dramatic. It is designed for the camera and for dramatic effect. How do you end up in that position in real life <laughs> with that kind of physical blocking? You can't. On camera, it's fine. It, it serves the dramatic moment. But in the real world, it would be so awkward. Because in the real world, here's... Here's Cisco standing in his office, right? And he's got to call Eddington and Odo to say, come up to my office. And he then has to be facing away from the door, like staring out into space or whatever. And then they walk in and he doesn't turn around to acknowledge that they're in the room. <laughs> so they just they walk in and it's like... Well, I guess this is going to be something dramatic because he's not turning to look us in the eye. I guess we're Mm going to have our whole conversation like this. Okay. All right. The captain has a flair for the dramatic for whoever is watching (laughs) on the other side of that window. Was he looking into? Oh, yeah. He was looking. Maybe he was looking at his reflection. Oh, could be. I don't know. Yeah. You know, but you're right. uh, Just just from a a blocking standpoint, it seems a little on the strange side. Uh, But there, there are other strange nuances that, you know, we'll talk about uh, in the discussion. Um, Speaking of which, uh, here's a strange nuance of at least of writing. There, there are certain kind of um, superlatives that, that are thrown around when it comes to trying to make a point. Mm. Exactly how clear is Tabellian glass? Uh, I I think the answer is uh, 
none more clear. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Well done, Nigel. Well done, Nigel. Thank you. I was just wondering if he was responding to, like, if he knew, like, say, Tabellian Glass to him is kind of one of those milky, obscured type things, Mm. because that's how how Garrick thinks. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So you could be making your point, but Garrick's like, okay, this is how I see it. So sure, your point's being made, but here's how I'm going to yeah, handle yeah. this. Uh, obfuscate, whatever possible. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love the small bit of cork that we get because he's just giving Garrick what for. It's like, my collar's too short, my you know, lapel's too wide, my shoulders are too high. Oh, and now my pants are too short. Right. And, and and what a nice way to actually use Quark in the episode, where really he isn't called for, but that was nice. And I love his direction to Garrick. Uh, just make it good. <laughs> you know? yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Make it good. Of course. It's like to any designer or anyone who works with a, with a customer, it's like, can you just make it look a little bit more, I don't know, like clearer, glassier? Could you make that glass a little bit more clear? A little more Tabalian, if you would. A little yeah. bit more Tabalian? Yeah. Oh, sure, of course, because why wouldn't I want to make it Tabalian? Is Garrick armed when he has lunch with Julian? I have so many questions now. For the cause, we'll talk in a moment. For the commercial break... We'll tell you right now about Mint Mobile. Hey, you've heard us talk about Mint Mobile for a while now, about how, well, we live in the 21st century and we don't have to be stuck with the old model of how we buy our mobile service. That is absolutely where Mint Mobile comes in. And Norman, I'm happy to hear you've been using Mint Mobile now. I want you to tell me about your experience. I have been, and it's been actually really incredible. One of the things that during this whole COVID lockdown uh, is a lot of us have been taking a look at, you know, kind of like our our outbound expenditures and to see where we can make some savings. And looking at my current or my former wireless bill, it just seemed that I was paying a little bit too much uh, for the same type of service and the same type of data quality that I would get from Mint Mobile service. So when I took a look at the packages and the the sheer clarity of how I'm managing my data, it was really kind of a no-brainer choice. So, And it was very easy. It was really, really easy to switch over, uh, aside from some of the you know, account closures from my previous service. But once I got my new SIM card, I was able to pop it in. I was able to get right onto their app, which is very easy to use, very clear, and very um, just uh, easy to navigate. And now I'm in complete control of my data the way I want it uh, with the kind of price that I can now sustain because everything's changed in, in my budgetary life and in my needs. So it was probably one of the easiest transitions I've ever done for myself when it comes to choosing my wireless service provider. Absolutely, man. It's kind of the beauty of it. You get to pick and choose how much data you want. You get to pick and choose the plan that works for you, and you are in total control of it. You mentioned that app that allows you just immediate access to do whatever you need, and you keep your phone and you keep your phone number. And very important to know, if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. 
So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get that plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, we've got uh, a handful of plot lines to follow here and character threads to follow here. Let's start out with the Garrick Zial interaction. Um, mainly because you're a fan of Garrick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's get into that. I mean, here's a, do we really trust either of them? Uh, when we last saw Zial, I, I know I had some sympathy for her and I want to see her have better opportunities as does Kira. Can Kira really keep her away from Garrick, though? Uh, or or should she even? I mean, I, part of the answer is no, because that's where we end up at the end of this episode, is this, like, we're going to do what we want to do anyway. I buy Zial's explanation to Garrick about hanging out with him in the Hotstone Spa. Like, uh, that, that was convincing. But then, again, all Cardassians apparently are good at lying and diversion. But at the same time, I could see wanting to spend time with someone familiar if you are only surrounded by the unfamiliar, even if that familiar person is the quote-unquote enemy, who uh, for her, Garrick is sort of the enemy in abstract, though. She has only heard stories. She doesn't really know this guy yet. So I, I just wonder what you make of it. I, I I know that there is more of this interaction to come. There is more of Garrick and Zial's lives uh, intersecting here to come. But what was your first impression with what they're they're doing here? Like it's this little bit of attraction, or maybe fascination. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what to make of it. Well, I think that just in in the the general terms of what we know about Cardassians. Almost every question is just laced with other questions, and every answer is laced with several. And I think that what's happening between Garrick and Zial, it's almost as if inter- interrogation is kind of like a, a form of, of foreplay between the two of them. Mm. They're yeah. not, they don't quite trust each other. Well, Garrick more so. Uh, we don't really know Zial's full intent, but it just seems that they are trying to find a common ground because I think that both of them feel the enemies are always around them being the Bajorans and the Federation and not being accepted by everybody on the station. So the more that they can kind of rely on each other in a lifeboat type situation, the better off they will be mm-hmm. because at least they have the, the commonality of being uh, allies in the sense that they are of the same uh, blood, if you will. But, Garrick still, I think that he just doesn't really trust anybody. Yeah. But but that's a fascinating direction to go with them, where they they are outsiders. And I love, she points out, the other layer here, which is that neither of them can go home. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're really laying on the unique situation with both of these characters, where they're the only Cardassians on board DS9. Um, Certainly, there is still some very uh, complicated feelings 
toward Cardassians <laughs> on board DS9. <laughs> but they can't just say, yeah, you know what, this isn't for us. We'll, we'll go back to Cardassia Prime or, or any of their colonies. They just can't. They just can't. You know, one thing I didn't consider in, in thinking about their relationship is that, in a way, maybe, maybe Benjamin should have been a little bit more like Garrick in this situation, where at the beginning of his relationship with Cassidy, he should have maybe a little bit been more wary because he's the commander of a station, a very powerful sector of space that he is in, char- in charge of as Federation authority goes. So every single person that becomes a part of his life, I think he has to be a little suspicious of because he never knows when an agenda is going to be thrown his way and if he's going to be ready for that. So that's what Garrick is really good at. Garrick is like, you know, that's really nice that you like invited me to, to be, you know, part of your inner circle and your closest, you know, um, your closest short list of friends, y'all. Mm-hmm. But what is this really about? Because if he really trusted her and, and really believed that she was of honest intent, he never would have brought a phaser into that <laughs> Hollow Suite program. Right. That's just right. him. He's like, I need a back door out. And if, yeah. this goes, if this goes south, I have my back door out, which means yeah. that he's already suspicious to begin with. Yeah. I, that was uh, that moment surprised me. Well, I guess I won't need this anymore. I mean, you walked in armed <laughs> to this situation. That's why I wanted Zial to have that knife so she could give him a haircut. And it would have just ramped up the tension between the two of them. Right. Just a little bit more. Right, right. Funny. Um, all right, well, let's talk about Cisco here. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of Cisco to talk about, many angles here. But um, I'm going to start this out just by asking. Does he do the right thing here? And I, there are many moments within the episode that we got to ask ourselves, does he do the right thing? But let's just sort of start at the beginning. He allows his girlfriend to be spied upon. But then he does her a favor. I mean, he's kind of put into this corner, but he allows the favor that, yeah, she's reluctant for about point two seconds before she decides to call in that favor. Hey, you're my boyfriend. You're in command of the station. Let me be special here and just skip this, uh, uh, skip this inspection. Um, then Cisco puts her in danger. Now, what I like about all of this, uh, that by the time we get to the end here, they are both grown ups about what has transpired she really puts herself on the line and, and, and does the right thing by coming back. Uh, they put each other, though, in terrible, difficult circumstances. But at the end of the day, they feels like we're able to respect each other's duties and loyalties and, and points of view. I just, I, 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 from the beginning, I kept asking myself, wow, is, is Cisco really... Is he really approaching this the right way? Or does he just need to come clean with her right up front and say, you know, as soon as he gets this bizarre sounding news from Moto and Eddington, just come right up to her and say, hey, this is the accusation. I hope this isn't true. We need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, there, there was a really good opportunity here for, you know, if if the performance was was, you know, drawn out of him a little bit more for those kind of suspicions to be played against each other 
mm-hmm. asking her questions that she would kind of in turn ask a question back and just say like, why are you asking this? Why wouldn't I ask you this? Well, because you said this. Well, because you said this. You know, there would have been a lot of more uh, forced tension between the two of them. The one thing, though, that I have a question about uh, and it's in, in regards to what I said earlier about that line where she slipped in, you know, the, the parody of virtue. Yeah. From the moment that she came on board the station, has she been playing Cisco this entire time? I wondered that too. And I do not know the answer or where I, I fall on that question, but I asked that of myself, just like I asked of myself about Eddington, like how far along did his, sympathies start to go toward the Maquis. You know, is Mm -hmm. this something brewing for a while uh, since the beginning, or is this a a newer thing for him? But I I asked myself that about Cassidy. Was Mm -hmm. this just convenience that, oh, look, here's DS9, here's my in. I don't think she's calculative like that. Uh, But if this is a secret she's been holding for a long time, well, that certainly adds another very complicated layer to their relationship. What do you think? Well, it's, it's a very interesting concept that, that Cassidy may only know just enough to, to be the bait for the Maquis. Because yeah. as far as we know, or as far as we've seen, the Maquis, as ragtag of a freedom-fighting unit as they are, they seem to be very compartmentalized. And they have different layers within their structure. Uh, obviously, Cal Hudson, which we saw way back in the Maquis, the title specifically, we saw that there are different factions within the Maquis and different layers of their organization. Cassidy they very well may be just an unsuspecting smuggler as, and, and under their employ at a certain level at just the very surface of the Maquis. So if anything ever happened to her, she really doesn't know anything and it's true. If she was ever, say, Vulcan mind melded for information or mm-hmm. uh, chemically uh, coerced to yeah. inform, she only knows that they contacted me. I'm supposed to deliver these goods, and that's it. But because of the law and because of the way that Odo and Eddington laid it out for Cisco, if she is in fact smuggling goods to the Maquis, she is aiding and abetting a terrorist organization, and therefore must suffer the penalty. But at the same time, though. She knows that she's delivering goods to the Maquis. So in a sense, she is part of their plan knowingly and willingly. And did they use her to dangle in front of Jake as bait to introduce him to his father and then create this relationship, which now she can use as leverage when she needs to? Yeah, right. I That's... A very sticky wicket you are dealing with here. <laughs> There's many, many layers of complication on top of that. Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't know how deeply they thought about this, but look, there's there's more to come. Obviously, we haven't seen the last of Cassidy Yates. Sure, yet. sure. Now, I, I want to talk about another aspect. There are many aspects of this episode. This moment of Miles challenging Worf about the motivations for the Maquis. Uh, you liked this scene. I think you actually tweeted something about it uh, early yep. on. Or, yeah, very good scene. This is a very Star Trek thing. Uh, we have to be able to look at the supposed enemy as people 
who have their own reasons, who are probably doing what they think is right. And that's the way to understand the situation, even if you disagree with it. Now, it is a good bit of diversion to have Eddington in that same scene say he doesn't have an opinion. He just does his job. Mm-hmm. But then that's kind of a scary thing, too. It, it's not an indulgence to ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. There is a moral and ethical component to every order that's given, every mission you're a part of. If you ignore that, you will likely do something unspeakable at some point. You know, but I, uh, I just I want you to talk a little bit about that moment with uh, with Miles and Worf because I, I thought that was a really strong way. That was probably for me the standout moment of the episode. Absolutely, I love this scene because I, I like it when there are three options involved or three opinions involved. Because Miles, we've from from studying hard time and from understanding Miles as kind of like this layman workers non commissioned officer. He sees things differently. He's not completely polished in in that Federation officer's sense where Starfleet has their orders and we must uphold those orders to the nth degree. That's Eddington, and I'll get to that in a second. Miles just understands that, you know what, they're just trying to eke out a living. They're just trying to survive. I get that. You know, I understand that. Counterpointed by Worf, it's like, you know, they're, they're thieves, they're terrorists, they're criminals, must be punished. Okay, Worf. I'm sorry. I just really don't love that aspect of, of his response because it's it's so black and white. And I think Federation officers should be better than that because it's just it's like, you know, in Return of the Jedi, it's like if only Sith deal in absolutes and Worf, yeah. you know, he has had already his share of understanding what honor really means or the interpretations thereof that he's been exposed to. Because a Starfleet officer would not have allowed his brother to have been violated in a way that a Federation officer should oppose or object to. Sure. That's my big deal with like, hmm, they're bad. Therefore, they must be punished. Yeah. I don't agree with that at all. So I'm not going to come down on Wharf too hard right now because that's mm-hmm. not the point. But what I do love is Eddington because Eddington is just, he's the, he's the wild card but in a really controlled sense so that he's throwing the scent off of him because they ask him, what's your opinion? I have no opinion. I'm a Starfleet officer. I do what I'm told. Yeah. So did the Nazis. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Well, see, and I love going back and rewatching that scene on the second and third time, knowing where we land with Eddington mm-hmm. because that gave a whole other layer of subtext to that scene. And where I'm coming yeah. from that is that if Eddington at one point in time in his life, like Cal Hudson or say, like, say, for example, um, I know this is probably jumping the timeline, but say Chakotay mm-hmm. or Ensign Rowe. Let's go all mm-hmm. the way back. Mm-hmm. They, too, were Starfleet officers towing the line, trying to be the very best Starfleet officer they possibly could because that's what Starfleet expected of them. Never questioning an order and watching people under the Federation's protection suffer because they were following orders. They were not individuals. They were parts of a machine that they, did, they no longer agreed with because they are moral people. Right. They can't right. stand aside and let people become unjustly treated as the, the, the Maquis or those Federation colonists were because of what Eddington said about 
You want the Federation to have the Cardassians in your organization so badly, you're willing to sacrifice your own citizens to do so. Mm-hmm. And that's not right. And I agree. I agree with what the Maquis is saying. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily the way they're doing it, but I agree with what they're fighting for. And I like that the chief acknowledges that. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, that is an interesting thing here. And I, I, I like this complexity of, uh, of the Maquis because they are acting from a place of their sense of morality. Uh, not not simply like, well, this is wrong, so we're going to fight about it. No, it, it, it does come from this much more layered place. So, And I can't speak to the fact of episodes that will come because I can't, you know, obviously we're not going to jump the mm-hmm. timeline. I'm only talking about the Maquis as I know them from when they were introduced to now. And yeah. like Eddington said, and he was very clear about it, and I'm glad the writers were clear about it too, when he confessed to Cisco, like he goes, look, we haven't targeted you. We haven't done anything to you, to the Federation specifically, because we're Federation also. Mm-hmm. We just want to make sure that we're not getting left out in the dust because you're compromising to add our enemies to your Federation. And we can't abide by that because you're leaving us out to, to die because of you wanting to expand your influence with our enemies. So what does that do to us? Where does that leave us? I mean, who's going to fight for us if not ourselves? One last thing when it comes to Eddington, and I know that from doing online research that Eddington is going to be a more prominent figure later on. What I like about his and Cisco's relationship is that at least Eddington is coming from a point of logic where he says, I'm doing what I need to do because the Federation doesn't have our interests involved in their negotiations with the Cardassians. Cisco basically said, I'm going to hunt you down with everything I got because it doesn't, he doesn't say like you are committing crimes against the Federation per se, or outlines how many, um, how many atrocities that you have created against the Federation of which there are none, which Edison Eddington speaks of. I think it's just because he's so mad. Cisco is so mad that he's been blindsided at every turn this episode. Blindsided by Cassidy, blindsided by Eddington, blindsided by his own, his own feelings and being maneuvered into doing things he didn't want to do because yeah. he trusted people. And maybe that was the distraction the Maquis was counting on. And he knew it. He even admitted that I'm to blame. I'm to blame for the Federation replicators. I'm to blame for everything. And it's so hard for him to swallow. Yeah. It's so hard for him to accept And maybe that's the point of a captain operating under isolation of his own feelings. Yeah, and I I think that's that was an interesting place to land here because, and maybe we'll get into it the next segment a little bit. Um, Eddington is going through his diatribe, uh, his grievances with the Federation, and Cisco doesn't even bother to try to refute any of that. He's just like in order of importance yeah you betrayed the federation but you betrayed me so now i'm gonna come after you i just want to see you in a penal colony growing old there it's it becomes personal and i think Mm -hmm. cisco's got a lot of personal stuff built up over this episode uh but he doesn't even attempt to uh to refute any of the problems that uh that eddington outlines 
What a heavy episode. I have a spin-off idea to lighten the mood. A Star Trek comedy called Those Wacky Mocky. No? As we do with the end of each and every mission log, we take a look at the onion that is the episode and try and pull back all the different layers. And believe me, there are a lot of layers to pull back in this episode. So, John, how did you feel about For the Cause and what did you get from your morals, meanings, and messages? Uh, I mean, look, overall, this is a good episode. Uh, It's a good slice of the overall DS9 plot threads that they've built up, and they adequately, I think, actually very nicely build suspicion and, and tie it into some personal drama as well. All that said, I, I don't think it's a particularly amazing episode. Uh, like We do get a plot twist, certainly, with the big reveal about Eddington. We get another plot twist with the reveal about uh, Cassidy, and then I, I think seeing her morality on display at the end by turning herself in. But this is a heavily plot-driven episode, which is fine. But I feel like maybe when you're doing a heavily plot-driven episode, there isn't as much to sink into here. They they just are sort of spelling things out for you. Now, I, we are in the morals, meanings, messages. We we are going to get to some of the stuff here about the Federation, so that that's definitely something to chew on. But I, I have a little mixed feelings about this. And I have to say it because we brought it up earlier in the show— I'm not a big fan of Avery's performance in this one. It's very uneven. I would say one of the highlights is that send-off that he gives to Eddington over the view screen. I think when you give Avery slash Benjamin Sisko a powerful moment, giving the speech, you know, putting somebody in their place, he's great at that. We've seen him do it. He was terrific dressing down Worf. He was terrific at you know, all these other moments like that. But this episode also calls for some very personal stuff. And there's a wide range of him sort of being vulnerable and and loving and also kind of lightening the mood a little bit and you you pointed out that scene where he comes in to tell Cassidy hey we should go to Risa together yeah by design that is an awkward scene but I think his performance of it makes it even more awkward Mm -hmm. just like that scene at the end of breakfast grabbing Jake's hand like the intention of that scene is there and yes there is a built-in awkwardness but it plays even more awkward than it was written yeah so the, this is tough. I, I don't think that he is a bad actor, but I think that we've landed uh, with him in a few places, at least in this episode and, and a few others I can think of, where he's not hitting all the layers that are necessary there. But when he shines, he shines great. So, uh, But the, the, those were moments that took away for me from this episode overall. How about you? Well, I think it's kind of sounding like a broken record when it comes to to my comments, especially how the episode holds up, because I'm going to kind of give the the standard boilerplate given answer of it's a very well produced, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, very well polished, well written. If even if the acting beats aren't quite there, the the dialogue is there, and some dialogue is fantastic. You're right. The the scene mm-hmm. between Eddington and Cisco at the end is just that's kind of like what you want to watch TV for, right? Those moments. Yeah. But so on paper, academically, it's it's an episode that holds up. I, I still think the drama in this episode holds up to some of the drama of TV shows or better that I watch today. However, I think that there is a lot of exposition that's going on, which almost in it falls into that George Lucas type of storytelling where I want to put so much information, either visual information or writing information into a very constrained and constricted narrative because I only have so many episodes left or so many movies to work with that right. I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to get the emotional context from your performances. I just need you to get that on the plate so I can serve it and move on. 80% is good enough. 20% where the real subtlety and nuance comes from, where it really sells characters that's kind of left on the cutting room table or never actually made it on screen to begin with because yeah. they need to move this story along, which brings me to another issue that I have with the season so far is that we have seen so many filler type episodes where you could have added in more subtext to Eddington, more subtext to Cassidy somewhere along the way where all of a sudden Cassidy comes back at the end of an episode. It's like, how was your run? Oh, it took a little bit longer than expected, but I made it on time. Right. 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 Now I know that contractually, you know, actors, have so many appearances and they're paid on those appearances or minutes on screen. I get that. But I wish that they would have factored that into the overall serialized arc, which is Deep Space Nine's strength right now, to to plant those seeds to where you either believe or you are suspicious of their motivations by the time it reaches this moment, because it would just make those scenes pay off a little bit stronger and give more momentum to the last couple of episodes that we're going to cover because we are coming to the end of season four fairly soon. I yeah. think three episodes from now yeah. in the span of four episodes, it's almost too difficult to tell that story because you have to wrap up what's going on with the Klingons. You have to wrap up what's going on with the Maquis, the interpersonal relationships between Benjamin and those who have betrayed him and where we move forward going into season five. So this is one of those kind of episodes that shines a light on lost opportunities because so many things need to pay off in this episode and they just don't quite hit the mark because they were never really established to begin with earlier on. And that's where you lose a little bit of the emotional connection with the betrayals that, and that's what sits a little uneven for me. I think you're pointing out something really interesting here because I, I, I think back to Next Gen where I liked to point out that the first couple of seasons of Next Gen, you really have a show that still has a foot in the 60s and one fit, foot in the 80s. And, it, and it's people sort of writing this new Star Trek, but with the lessons and sort of the patterns that they had from the old Star Trek. And it takes a little time for it to find its way to say, no, 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 we, we're going to have the confidence to tell our stories the way we want to tell them. DS9, in a similar way, is sort of trying to figure out, okay, we have these opportunities to do these big story arcs, but we also are sort of in the pattern of doing what every other show does and what we've all 
trained to do as writers on this show, which is to tell these episodic stories. So you miss the opportunity to do what you're talking about, which is start planting those seeds early. Say, if you're going to have a long character arc, instead of trying to compress all of that into two episodes, wait, let's actually plant the seed early. Let's actually Mm -hmm. give that some weight by building it. Because we're already saying that we're going to build these long arcs, but it seems like they're dedicating that, the the long arc building, to these big epic stories. Like, here are the Klingons. Here's how they're making life miserable for the Cardassians. As opposed to, let's see what the human impact is, the, the character and emotional impact is over time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think part of what you're describing really is just, in a way... Uh, sort of the nature of the beast of how they approach to doing this show. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I do believe that the last time we saw Eddington on screen was, I don't know, what, maybe 10 episodes ago? From, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, yeah. Our Man Bashir. Yeah. And he didn't really, you know, he didn't really have any true responsibility or gravitas in terms of his character for that episode aside from facilitating what he needed to do in ops. So you didn't really plant anything there for you to go back and, and, and say when he finally revealed himself as this mastermind for the, for the, the plans to steal the replicators, you're like, that was there all along. I just <laughs> right. didn't see it. And you would feel right. at that time, how Cisco felt, you would have felt betrayed. Yes. By I Eddington. Know. And that's yeah. what's missing in this episode to really pull it together. You did not feel the same feeling that Cisco felt being betrayed by Cassidy and being betrayed by Eddington. And once you do that, once you make that connection and break that fourth wall where you're identifying with the emotional content of a character, that's where you can't wait to see what Cisco is going to do next, because you feel the same way. You want to be able to reach through the screen and throttle Eddington and bring him to justice (laughs) because you too were betrayed as you were watching it unfold and you didn't see it coming. Yeah, right. but no, but, but you're right. And instead, the, what what we get feels like a very passive thing, and that's why in my first part of the wrap up here, I said, yeah, it, it feels plot driven, where instead we should really have more of that that character depth. It's not that it isn't there; it's just that it doesn't necessarily feel earned all the time. Mm-hmm. What you're describing is a way to really earn it. Let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. What uh, what do we see here? Well, for me, I think that it's a really good example in this episode of why the captain or the commander or whoever's in charge really needs to distance himself from emotional attachments and why that is such a burden. It's not because they want to. It's because they have to. They can't be, they can't be persuaded by the emotional attachments of people that they care about or else they become a liability. We saw that in Shattered Mirror. Shattered Mirror showed how much of a liability Jake is to Benjamin. And I'm not saying that their relationship, mm-hmm. you know, isn't isn't necessary. Of course, they're a father and son. They love each other. That's that's beside the point. The point is, is that they know that they can get to Benjamin through his son and be able to exploit and manipulate Benjamin to do their bidding. Because if not, something bad's going to happen to Jake. That's his weak point. His weak point are the people that he loves. Dax, Jake, and now Cassidy. 
And now that we know that Cassidy is part of the Maquis at a certain level, we know that that's another weak point that can be exploited by stronger or higher ranking members of the Maquis Mm -hmm. that can push those buttons on Cisco. And maybe that's why Kirk or Picard, they need to disassociate themselves from that possibility of being manipulated because of the relationships that they built. And yes, that's a very lonely existence, but their responsibility is to safeguard the principles of the Federation. And those principles supersede their own needs. As far as I understand from the responsibilities of a captain, because once you can find a way to manipulate that captain, that means that you can manipulate your agenda into how those operations on a day-to-day basis occur and thusly manipulate the Federation. So uh, an interesting uh, dichotomy of I need to be a more well-rounded person, but at the same time, my duty is to this. And this brings me up to kind of like my last morals, meanings, and messages here. Mm -hmm. For my part, that's where I see Eddington, because Eddington felt like if he stayed as the paragon of a Starfleet officer, then he is betraying his own morals as a person. He's betraying that the Federation's ideals are greater than me doing good because I'm a good person. And if I set aside that, that means that the Federation is just turning out people that follow orders because it's in the best interest of the Federation, but it's not in the best interest of me as a person. And I find that making that decision of, of, separating himself and joining the Maquis or being part of the Maquis so interesting because how many times have we felt like at work or in, in social gatherings, you know what? I really should do something about that. I really should be a stronger person or insert myself where I see something wrong being done. Mm -hmm. But what are the consequences? Am I strong enough to be able to burden those, the retaliation, the reprisals, if I do something good if I do the right thing and stand by my morals. And I think that that's where Eddington and and Cisco are at the end of this. Those are the morals that I get out of this episode. How about you? Interesting. Well, I I mean, look, I I think that last scene with uh, Cassidy is great. She she puts personal loyalty and love above all else. Um, And you could make the case that Eddington is putting his personal loyalty and sense of morality above all else, although he's doing it in a way that now makes him a traitor, you know? So this episode has an interesting way of of riffing on these themes of loyalty. I think where I'm going to have a big challenge with this episode uh, in terms of its morals, meanings, messages, is that this sort of goes into the pantheon of DS9 episodes that constantly explore this discord in paradise because DS9 loves to show the cracks in the Federation and those who are marginalized or done wrong by them. Now, I I get and I appreciate the nuance and the depth of showing the why for people like Eddington. And I think the the Maquis, it isn't just sort of a haphazard, like, oh, let, let's create something to stir things up with the Federation. Like, no, we're actually giving them a moral point of view that's very interesting here. But at the same time, here's DS9 again, with that exchange between Eddington and Cisco. 
in in my head hearing it as you know the, this whole idealism thing with the federation yeah that's for the birds <laughs> you know that's that's part of the message that i get and ds9 again pats itself on the back for revealing everything wrong with the federation and those gullible rubes who keep living under it you know even cisco like i said before he doesn't refute anything that eddington says at that point, the the anger, the betrayal, the hurt, it's all personal. It's just like, I don't care why you're doing this. I don't care what you think you're getting out of it. But now you've hurt me. So now I can't wait to see you punished. And I will do everything I can to, to get us to that day. And it's sort of, it, it's brushing off. It's like, yeah, regardless, wh whatever it is you just said about the Federation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't care. Well, I think somebody should care. You know, uh, because this is another one of those points where DS9 really wants to telegraph to the audience, look how different we are. Look how this is not the Star Trek that you know. Um, and we're going to dismantle all the things that we think make Star Trek tick. So I appreciate and I like where they're going with a lot of these deeper character traits i wanted somebody to stand up and actually say like i i maybe it should have been miles maybe it should have been i i i think cisco at some point to say hey look there might be problems with this federation and starfleet that we live under that that we have uh, applied our loyalties to but we can actually work to make it better and the right answer isn't necessarily then to take up arms against it. Mm -hmm. So, but look, I know we have more DS9 to go. You know, John, the more I think about it, and as much as I love the scene with Miles and, and Worf and Eddington talking about their opinions on the Maquis, I really do think that at the very beginning of this episode, that exchange of dialogue between Cisco and Cassidy really set the tone for, I think, the intent of this episode when he said, I'm a paragon of Starfleet virtue. And she says, no, you're a parody of Starfleet virtue. Yeah. Was that just uh, a one-off piece of, you know, flippant writing and her response? Or was it really kind of the writers planting something more in the minds of the audience that when you finally come back to it as we are, she is kind of thumbing her nose at Benjamin's trust? I, I don't think anything here is done in a flippant way. I, I think very often the writers want to make sure that they remind you and me and everybody else who's watching, this is not the Star Trek you're expecting, and we're going to pick apart and reveal all the problems with the things that you think make Star Trek tick. So we'll see where we land. <laughs> <laughs> Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog, and you can enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, Your Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam! Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, to the death.
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. If that's what Eddington would do for the cause, I'd hate to find out what he'd do for a Klondike bar. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.